The word is our delight. Let's hear the delight of the Lord together. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For night and day your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are my hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord in heaven, we do thank you and we praise you again for speaking to us through your word. Now, as always, we pray you would open up our hearts, for we truly want to be impacted by what you say here today. Change us, mold us, and shape us. Again this day we pray, through Christ our Lord we ask. Amen. Please be seated, and if you would, grab your Bibles. Turn to Psalm, 20, sorry, Psalm 32. Psalm 32. I hope that through my reading and possibly through the worship time, you picked up the source or the idea behind our worship together today, which is to lean into the Lord's forgiveness, to lean into the Lord's forgiveness. I was going to start today by asking you to imagine, if you would, a time where you would have said something or could possibly say something or where you would voice or act in such a way that would uh, severely damage a relationship, an important relationship, either a family member or a friend. I was going to ask you to, to try to imagine that scenario would happen. I'm not going to ask you to imagine that scenario because my guess is that it will not be hard for all of us to remember such a scenario. If you have not reflected upon a time in your life where you have severely damaged an important relationship through your words or through your actions, something along those lines, then you severely need to reflect more significantly upon your life and ask the Lord for his blessings in that regard. I want you to think of a time where you have damaged an important relationship through your words or through your actions. Now, I could share some of mine. Uh, that, of course, was the initial goal as I thought about this. I will share at a time where I have severely damaged an important relationship in my life, et cetera, et cetera. But the fear of my doing that is that we would then take this psalm and apply it into my life. And our, the goal of our time here together is to take this psalm and apply it into your life, into the experiences that you have. Again, kind of what our understanding here is for the summer for the psalms is that the psalms portray so clearly for us the, uh, the experiences of the author, the experience of the psalmist. And all too often, we can, I think, 
appreciate exactly what the psalmist is talking about. There's a great application of what the psalmist is talking about into our own experiences and into our own lives. And so in order to appreciate the psalmist's response to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, I need you to imagine, or wrong, I need you to remember one of those same situations in your own life, a time where you have severely damaged some relationship in your life, then if you have that memory in your mind, perhaps then you can appreciate the psalmist here and the experiences in which he has. He, those experiences begin basically in verse 3, where he says that I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. This man is under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's one of the great blessings that we find in the New Testament about the work of the Holy Spirit, is that one of the things he does in our lives is bring conviction into our hearts. Now, by conviction, what I mean is that with that sense and awareness of our failures and our betrayal in life. And it's a glorious thing. It's a glorious work that the Spirit does in our lives by bringing that conviction into our hearts, because what that does is prepare us then for the experiences that the author has here, the moving from that period of conviction into a period of forgiveness. I fear that many of us don't experience the same thing that the author experiences here in Psalm 32, even though we all find ourselves in similar situations all the time, I fear that we don't experience the same freedom and the relief and the joy and the glory that the psalmist is going to portray for us here because we handle that conviction of the Spirit differently. We have been trained to minimize a sense of guilt, to push it aside, to deny that it's really there, to try to justify it. Well, yes, I said that, but that person was really asking for it. Or something along those lines. We have trained ourselves to think differently about the conviction of the Spirit than what our psalmist experiences right here. I want you to look very carefully, if you would, at verses 3 and 4. When he kept silent, my bones wasted away all day. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. Thousands of years before our psychologically oriented society today has convinced us that there is a connection between our emotional, our spiritual health, and our physical health, the psalmist is well aware of that. He is experiencing conviction because of his sin. He's experiencing awareness by the Holy Spirit that what he has done has been inappropriate and wrong. And because of that, he physically is under the, the manifestation of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I hope and pray that you have experienced that. Not because I want you to feel guilty, but because it is a beautiful thing to be convicted by the Spirit because that can lead, that does lead, then to our forgiveness. And that's what the psalmist is experiencing here. He's groaning day and night. God's hand is heavy upon him. That's the conviction of the Spirit uh, upon him in his life. The awareness, the coming to mind that he has done something that is inappropriate in God's sight. And consequently, he is he's feeling literally wiped out. I'm sure many of you have felt this way. Physically, you feel drained, not because you've done anything physically exhausting, but because something spiritually exhausting 
is happening in your life. And so what happens here? Eventually, in verse 5, then I acknowledge my sin to you. Eventually, the psalmist gets to a spot where he can't take the conviction any longer, or he seeks relief from the conviction. And what's the relief that the Bible portrays for us? What are we supposed to do? We're not supposed to beat ourselves. We're not supposed to uh, punish ourselves in some format. We are supposed to seek forgiveness. And so what does he do? He goes and he does not cover up his iniquity. Rather, he says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And then that marvelous line, and you, O God, forgave the the iniquity of my sin. The, The relief, the overwhelming joy just pours forth in this psalm. I I challenge you to read this psalm in any other sense than what you have here as a man who is experiencing the overwhelming blessing of being forgiven, the overwhelming blessing of having that conviction, that awareness that what he has done has been inappropriate before God, and he confesses it, and the confession is great, But what is really great is the forgiveness that the Lord gives. The Lord pours out forgiveness upon the psalmist, and the psalmist does what all of us would do in that case. You run to everybody else, and you say, man, I have have experienced relief from this guilt, the burden of my sin, the overwhelming shame, the frustration that I have over this part of my life. I have relieved, I have experienced some relief from that. You too should seek after the Lord. And so, in verses 6 and 7, the psalmist turns and says, don't, don't wait too long. Don't do what I've done. Don't bottle it up. Don't try to hide it some other way. Turn and confess your sin before the Lord. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Because he will too give you that same sense of deliverance, that same hiding place. And then God jumps into the psalm. And God speaks in verses 8 and 9. He says, Because this is key about God's forgiveness. It's not just that he removes the sense of conviction. It's not just that you sense that great relief of being in a proper standing with the Lord again. Rather, God then says, yes, all of that takes place, but also now, sanctification is possible. It's not just that you're forgiven for your sin, but I will work in your life so that those sins may no longer dominate your life. And so he says, I will instruct you. I will teach you in the way you are to go. The psalmist here is excited not only about sharing his forgiveness, but about sharing the fact that God promises that he will change us, that he will transform us, that he will work in our lives. I love the imagery that he portrays about a horse and a mule in verse 9. Do not be like a horse and a mule, which has to be yanked around um, My father always used to tell me, why do you have to learn everything the hard way? Why do you have to learn everything the hardest possible way? That's what God is saying here. Don't be like a horse. I can direct you in the way you're supposed to go, but don't make me force you. Don't do it the hard way. Do it the way of transformation and of joy. Let me instruct you. Let me guide you. Now, if I'm right from the early part, of uh, the sermon here, that everybody shares in a sense of, of, uh, of conviction. That it's not hard for you to come up with a time in your mind where you have somehow betrayed a friend, or you somehow have crossed a boundary that you know that you shouldn't have crossed, or somehow that you have brought conviction of the Spirit 
upon yourself? Why is it that we so infrequently sense the same blessing and the power and the joy that the psalmist here demonstrates? Why is it that we are not overcome with the same kind of blessing that the psalmist seems to describe? If we, are, if we share in the conviction, if we share in the sinfulness, why do we not always share in the blessings? Well, again, I think part of the reason is that we handle conviction of the Spirit wrong. When we sense something is wrong in our lives, when we are made aware of a sin area in our lives, we do not run to the Lord. We do not go, as the psalmist does in verse 5, and acknowledge our sin before the Lord. Instead, we do other things. But I think another reason is because the psalmist here has such an awareness of what forgiveness means. He's, he's caught up in the picture of awareness, of, the, of, of his understanding of forgiveness. Look in verses 1 and 2. I'm going to spend a little bit of time here. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is a man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I want to stress here the overwhelming sense of forgiveness, the overwhelming sense of redemption and of salvation that pervades these two verses. And it begins by recognizing that the psalmist uses four different terms for sin. Notice he uses four different terms for sin. Transgression, sin, iniquity, and deceit. Transgression, sin, iniquity, and deceit. Now these are all synonyms. And by and large, like synonyms are, they all mean kind of the same thing. But there's a sense where you use a synonym to try to nudge out a different idea, to explore a, a little different sense of the term in which you're talking about. So the psalmist here is saying, look, I have betrayed my Lord. I have fallen into sin. And here's the way in which he describes it. First off, he says that they are transgressions. Now, a, a transgression is a time where you're crossing a boundary, where you cross a known line that you're not supposed to go. A transgression is an action that you take that you know you are not supposed to take. And again, many of us, I think, have great recognition of this. Our parents, if they were like my parents, your parents, uh, did the same kind of thing, you know, don't eat your crayons, uh, don't stay out past 11 o'clock at night, uh, don't, um, don't swim by yourself, you know, whatever. They, they all produce certain boundaries for us, and we know what a transgression is. Transgression is acting in a way against what we know to be true, or it, it doesn't even have to be a stated boundary. You know, don't write on the walls. Um, we all get a sense that we're not supposed to write on the walls. Those are boundaries that we're not supposed to cross, and a transgression describes a sin that actually crosses that boundary. So those are actions that we take that we're not supposed to take. I hope that you were listening well as uh, Brendan led us through that time of confession because it was fabulous if you were noticing, and of course I was because I had the sermon in the back of my head. I'm noticing that he's, he's talking about all the things that we need to confess and he's describing them in ways that touch upon our transgressions where we cross boundaries. Next is sins, whose sin is covered. 
a, a sin here. The word that's used for sin is a famous one. It's one that missing the mark, uh, not, not failing to do what we should do. If a transgression is acting in ways that we shouldn't, a sin is failing to do something that we should do or failing to hit the mark, failing to be whom God has called us to be. And so the scriptures use a great illustration for a sin. A sin is a bow and an arrow, and any time you fail to hit the bullseye, if you fail to hit the mark, if you go long to the left or to the right or fall short, that is a sin. You're failing to hit the mark. Most of us know that so much of our sin happens exactly in that way. Yes, we transgress. Yes, we act in ways that we shouldn't, but all too often we don't act in ways or we don't act faithfully in ways that we know that we should. The Lord counts no iniquity. The third one, the idea of iniquity. Iniquity is a twistedness, a corruption. So what the, what the author of the psalmist is identifying here is that there's a sense where inside there's a, a twistedness, a corruption that is in my heart. And I know that full well. Over the past couple of weeks, I've been in numerous situations with uh, other people, and I can honestly say that I have not transgressed. I haven't acted against them in a certain way. And by and large, I have acted toward them the way that I probably should. But my attitude in the midst of those interactions has been terrible, and it has reflected this perversion, this twistedness. I didn't act against them, I didn't fail to act for them, but inside my heart, iniquity was just screaming all too often in my life. It is that sin that is on the inside. Finally, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Deceit is a picture of our sin because it convinces us to believe something that is not true. Our sin is marked by a falsehood by a failure to see reality or to embrace reality as it truly is, as it is meant to be. One of the most helpful discipleship tools in my own life, lines in my own life over the past uh, 10 years or so, has been don't believe the lie. Don't believe the lie that you're the master of your own life. Don't believe the lie that you get to choose what is right. Don't get, believe the lie that you are whatever you think you are and not who God has called you to be. Don't believe the lie that you can decide what is right and what is wrong. That is deceit. It is a mark of sin, this failure to see the world as God created it to be. But this psalm is not about sin. This psalm is about forgiveness. This psalm is about salvation. And so I don't want you to miss that while the opening lines here talk so much about sin, they provide four different ways for us to understand sin, what they're really doing is providing four different ways of describing what salvation looks like. The focus here is not upon transgressions, sins, iniquities, and deceit. The focus is upon what God has done because of those things in our lives. So look at this again. Blessed is one whose transgressions is forgiven. The transgression is forgiven. Uh, the word there, forgiven, means a lifting or a removing of a burden. 
Now, if you've ever had the experience of conviction that we were talking about before, you know what it's like to feel burdened. One of the great images of that is in Pilgrim's Progress, uh, a book that I strongly encourage everybody to read, which is a metaphor of the Christian life. And the main character, as the story opens, he's carrying this massive burden on his back and he can't get rid of it. And it just weighs him down. But he finds himself at the foot of the cross and the burden falls away from him, is lifted away. And there's no greater description of the joy of the overwhelming sense of blessing of the Lord that is described there as the burden is freed from him. That's what forgiveness is. But forgiveness is also when our sin is covered. Not covered like just pushed into the corner, but covered over so that it no longer interferes with the relationship. Where it no longer marks the relationship. I have a really gross scar on my body. Um, and if you saw it, it would affect our relationship. <laughs> but you will never see it. Because it is always covered. And because it is covered, it does not interfere with what God intends for us to be together, brothers and sisters in the Lord, because that sin has been covered. That is what the Lord does with your sin. He covers it so it doesn't interfere with our relationship. The Lord does not count our iniquity against us. He cancels the debt. There's no greater picture of forgiveness in the New Testament than the story of the unforgiving servant, the man who owed the king gazillion dollars, and yet the king freely and openly cancels that debt. And the reason why that, that parable means so much to most of us is because we can so easily identify with the man that owes an insurmountable debt. That's what sin does to us. And salvation is a freeing completely of all of that debt. And then finally, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Salvation allows us redemption, forgiveness, allows us a glimpse into the way things are supposed to be. There is no deceit. We see things as they truly are. I hope you saw a couple of weeks ago there was a little video thing that was circling through the internet and it showed a young baby, eight, ten months old, something like that, who for the first time was getting glasses. Obviously they were severely, they were, had a severe vision problem and you saw this baby being held in his mother's arms and then when the glasses come on, and he looks for the first time at his mother's face. And the overwhelming joy, like it's unbelievable how much a six, eight, ten-month-old baby was able to communicate, this is reality. This is what reality really is. And it came across so powerfully in that clip. It comes across so powerfully when you experience that kind of forgiveness, each and every one of us. And it is open to you every time you experience conviction of the Spirit, which if you are anything like me, happens quite frequently. 
the conviction of the Spirit, which leads to that eye-opening joy of seeing the world the way God intended to see it. So it's no surprise that these two verses are set up as Beatitudes. Remember the Beatitudes in the New Testament? Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. Here's the blessed. Blessed is the one whose transgressions is forgiven. Blessed. That person enters into a state of blessedness. And nothing captures that state of blessedness better for us than when we come to the table of the Lord. Because all the forgiveness that is ours in Psalm 32 can sound like words that are far beyond our experience until it comes to its fruition in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, our brother, whom you meet, whom you can meet if you have not yet met him, our brother in the Lord, who has walked the path before us and who has died on the cross so that this forgiveness can be ours, so that this experience can be ours. We celebrate that when we come to the table. The table is a portrayal not just of Christ's sacrifice, not just of his forgiveness, but of our blessedness as being part of this service together.